turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, and I will be quick. I know that we have young ones who will begin to uh, lose it if they don't have food soon, and we're already at 1230. So let's look at Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. Matthew 45, or 24, verses 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that house will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. And I pray that we would be known as a people of Your Word. Lord, we, we cherish the proclamation of truth because we know that it's in the proclamation of truth that life comes. We know that hearing or faith comes by hearing. And that's what we need is faith, increased faith. Lord, we need to know You more, to understand You more, to believe what we already know about You even more. And so I pray that You would do that. Give us faith as we look at Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, at the risk of being boringly repetitive, I just want to remind you very quickly of what we're studying, the Olivet Discourse. And it's important whenever you're studying a discourse, especially in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, most of you know, is sort of centered around five different discourses. And this is the last of those five discourses. And this discourse began by our Lord, or the disciples of our Lord asking Him in chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That word coming sparks up a lot of discussion and debate and theology. The word simply means presence. Lord, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your presence in the end of the age? And you'll remember that Christ has already promised judgment is about to come upon Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the city. And so they're asking... When's this going to happen? In their understanding, the destruction of Jerusalem would have meant the end of the world. How could the world continue without Israel, without Jerusalem, without the temple? That was their thinking. And so he speaks to begin to clear up some of this misunderstanding. And he, we've saw so far that the, the end of the so-called Jewish age is not the end of all things. It's, it's really the, the beginning, a clear demarcation of the beginning of the church age. Sort of the beginning of the end, we could say. We've been in the last days for around 2,000 years. When it comes to Christ's presence, 
Christ is present in every act of judgment. His judgment came when He came. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men have loved the darkness rather than the light. He was present when He came in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He was present when judgment came upon the Israelites in the form of the gift of tongues. Paul says that was an act of judgment on them. Christ, is, His presence is manifest in all of these acts of judgment. He manifests His presence throughout the church age and has continued to do so as His kingdom is built. And when He does finally come to consummate all of that judgment, everybody's going to know it. It's not going to be a secret. We're not going to see clothes lying around and wonder, well, what happened? I wonder if the rapture happened. Everybody's going to know when Jesus returns. And that discussion of the second coming, he probably begins to allude to that around verse 27 or 28 of this chapter. And what we've learned, all that we need to know is that it's sure to happen, that it will happen when nobody knows and nobody expects it. And so we've saw for the last several weeks that we need to stay awake and be ready. All of that is the need-to-know information about the second coming of Christ. The, the sort of overview is given in verses 36 to 44. Everything we need to know about the second coming is that it will happen and nobody knows when it's going to happen. And so stay alert and be ready. So then we move into these verses today to finish out this particular chapter. And we have a special word to ministers of Christ in light of the second coming. Now, that requires a word of qualification because we are not all ministers. We're not all pastors. We're not all called into the gospel ministry. But we all do have some calling. All of us have some duty, some uh, task that the Lord has given us to carry out until He returns. And so as we look at this passage, I don't want us to check out and say, well, I'm not a pastor and so it doesn't apply. I want you to think from that perspective that we all have a job when it comes to listening. You have a job. As I preach, even if I were just preaching exclusively to pastors, if you're a member of the church, you have a job. You listen and you gauge those who have the rule over you. This is what the Scriptures say. Are my elders meeting the standard? That's your job. You listen with that in view. Perhaps you are a man who aspires to the office of overseer. Then you listen with that in mind. Listen for the gravity and the weightiness of the task. A lot of men aspire to the office of overseer because they have no idea what the office of overseer is. Well, the, the Scriptures begin to lay out some of the gravity of that office. And a lot of times, just considering the weightiness of it, men say, maybe that's not what I aspire to. Maybe I'm aspiring to something else. And so listen with that. Listen with that in your mind. Others of you, what calling do you have? Just listen from that perspective. As we walk through these verses, think about it. I'm, my calling is a husband. My calling is a father. My calling is a wife. My calling is a mother. We've all got a job, a, a task to carry out until Christ returns. And this passage will um, at least address, in general, if not even specifically, how you are to view that task in light of the second coming of Christ. 
the weight and severity of the Christian ministry is exclusive only in the degree to which those who teach will be held, but not in, the re not, not in just the reality that there will be a reckoning for all gifts. Everybody's going to answer. Those who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment, but it's, that doesn't mean everybody else is not going to be judged as well. We all have a job. We all have a task. And so as I walk through these verses and I say things like minister or ministry, I'm talking about ministers and the ministry, but I also want you to think about your specific tasks. Christ has given shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So think from that perspective. Imagine that we're all a day's journey out from the foot of Mount Sinai. We're about to meet, be in the presence of God. What attitude should I carry to that meeting? I have a job to do and I'm about to stand before God with whatever I've done. So think about it. And I'll open up this text under two headings. Number one, the expectations and rewards of a true ministry. And then the description and ruin of a false ministry. Number one, the expectations and rewards of a true ministry. In verses 45 to 47, we see what a God-honoring minister and ministry looks like and what that man can expect at the judgment. First, notice the man who ministers. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant? This is the true minister. He is first faithful. That is trustworthy, dependable. He's known to be honest. He's a man of principle. He's a man who stands by his word even if it costs him something. We look at Jephthah and we say, that was a bad idea. You made a rash vow, but he stood by it. We can hold him up because he said, Honey, I'm sorry, but I made a promise to God and I have to keep it. Not to mention the fact that his daughter had been raised in a household where she said, You're right, Father. You made a vow to the Lord. You keep it. This is a man who is faithful, trustworthy, dependable. Now again, you're not all pastors. So let me ask, are you dependable? Are you a faithful person? Are you trustworthy? This is not exclusive to pastors. Every Christian should be a dependable person. Can people trust you? Now the, the sad thing about asking questions like this is most of the time you don't know. You think everybody trusts you? When they're all together, none of them trust you. And so this is, this is hard, but examine yourself. Can people trust you in your area of service? Whatever it is, can they trust you or are they afraid to trust you? Are they sort of skeptical about your abilities? Are you the type of person that nobody wants to confide in you because they know how much you gossip to them about everybody else and so they don't want to say anything to you because they know you're probably just going to talk that way about them to everybody else. You're not faithful. You're not dependable. Are people afraid to give you responsibilities because they're really not sure the job is going to get done? Are you faithful? This is, we invent phrases like, well, Lord willing. We take, this is taking the name of the Lord in vain again. What we're really saying is, I'm not going to commit to anything. Well, Lord willing. And that way, if you don't do it, 
then somebody says, hey, I thought you were going to do such and such. I, I got you. I said, Lord willing, joke's on you because I never committed. You see, this is what we do to try to, to hold on to unfaithfulness and being, uh, not being dependable while sounding holy. Are you the type of person someone can trust? A true minister is faithful. People can trust him. And a Christian, a true Christian, should be faithful. Whatever capacity the Lord calls you, you need to be faithful. Secondly, he is wise. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Now this is not wise with worldly wisdom. This is wise with godly wisdom. Knowing what and how and when and how much of God's truth to apply to specific situations, to specific people, to certain circumstances. A true minister has to be equipped to deal rightly with differing circumstances. Now again, you're not all ministers or pastors in that regard. But you do minister to somebody, friends, co-workers, wife, children, husband. You minister to somebody, hopefully. So do you know what they need? Ben mentioned it. Well, we, go, we go to our co-workers and we're hoping that God will give us something. Well, that would hopefully uh, be preceded by the fact that we've invested some sort of thought into what they need. And we pray those things to the Lord. Lord, my co-workers need to hear this. My wife needs this. And so, Lord, give me the words to meet that need. That's wisdom. That's godly wisdom. Knowing what they need and how to give it, how to administer it, what dosage to give. So we, we all know that there are some times when, when somebody needs meat and sometimes they just need a snack. Your kids come and say, I need a snack. Well, I'm not going to cook a full meal. I'm going to give them a snack. Or do you know when the alcohol of God's Word must be applied, even though it stings? as opposed to other times when just put a band-aid on it to make them feel better, will do the job. That takes wisdom to know the difference. Do you know when milk is a bad idea, but soda and crackers would probably be better? Now think, think spiritually now. In, in, in the physical realm, we understand that. My, my kid's throwing up. I'm not going to bring them a glass of milk and a brownie. Soda and crackers. You don't need that right now. You need something that'll stay. In the spiritual world, it's the same. Wisdom, the faithful and wise minister knows what to give, when to give, and how to give it. And that goes across the board for all of us who have some area where we're giving somebody something, especially the truth of God's Word. He's faithful and wise. People don't mind leaving him at the helm of the ship, so to speak, and just letting him steer. They don't feel like they have to stand around him waiting to grab the wheel because he's paying, he's looking over here or watching over here. We can trust him and we can trust him to do what's right. Who then is the faithful and wise, and then notice this third word, servant. Doulos, a bondservant. He, this is a, an owned slave, one bought with a price. The Lord is describing somebody who gladly acknowledges, I am not my own. I don't belong to me. They understand that their ministry is not theirs. It's a stewardship from another. It's to be handled with care. A bondservant does nothing on their own inclinations. 
but he lives under the governance of his master. What has my master commanded me to do? And this is what Christ demands of his ministers. Not someone who just runs willy-nilly at the head of the pack and, and, and veers off at every rabbit trail and every, every whim and trail of his imagination just because, hey, they let me lead this thing and so they're going to follow wherever I go. That's not a servant. A servant is one who simply, faithfully stewards that which has been given to him. That's what our Lord is describing. Now again, we could apply this to everybody. Everybody has something, some ministry, some duty that the Lord has called you to. Do you consider yourself a slave or a free agent? You say, I'm a husband. My, my job then from Scripture is to wash my wife with the water of the Word. So do you do that just any old way? Well, I'll just do it like this. Or do you do it as a slave? My wife is a a weaker vessel, a prized possession to me, and then the Lord has also given me this stewardship to steward her with the Word. Nothing I have is my own. I don't, I'm not taking these things and just juggling them. It would be like juggling diamonds. That's not what we do. We're servants who have been recipients of a ministry that we then steward on behalf of the Master. So the true minister of Christ will be a man who is a faithful and wise Servant. Notice then the charge of this minister. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Again, the master sets him over the household. That reminds us again, this is not his, his ownership. It's a stewardship. The master owns it. That word household is one of the reasons most assume this is dealing with ministers because the church is called the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The minister stands, or the true minister understands that his master has given him a role to play, not as owner, but as a steward under the master. So no pastor, no minister is an autonomous chief executive officer. He doesn't just get to do what he wants to do. He's not just calling all of the shots. And in the same way, no Christian is, is given the freedom to just run wild in the penthouse suite at the top of this stewardship God's given them. It's not yours. It's from the Lord. And so every Christian is a steward of their master's things. And notice the job. The job is to give them their food at the proper time. The primary duty of a faithful minister is what? Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Labor in the Word and doctrine. Give themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. If you aspire to the office of overseer, but you don't aspire to labor in the book, you're aspiring to something you don't know anything about. If you're aspiring to the office of overseer, but you don't aspire to labor in the book for the good of others, not for your own spiritual growth alone, but for the good of others, you're not aspiring to the right work. Parents and husbands, you have this same duty to disseminate the Word, to feed at the proper time. But primarily for the ministers, this is what we do. We, we feed as a church. It's your job to be patient with the men who labor in the Word. Come to church to be fed. 
Some of y'all think you come to church to leave, right? You've already felt it this morning in your hips while you sit there and you listen to the Word, word by word by word, line upon line upon line, the Word of life. And what are we thinking? What time is it? You came to leave. Some of you come to church and you already know we got to leave because so on and so forth. You come to leave. That's not why we come to church. I come to feed. Your job is to come to eat. Come to be fed and be patient with that. Don't come to leave. We're still, again, we're assuming this is the faithful and wise servant who's feeding. So this is the one. The church comes. And you don't come, hopefully, wondering, well, I wonder if I'm going to get fed today. And I've heard some of those stories. Some of y'all have said we've been in churches where we didn't know if we were going to get anything. We left more hungry than we were when we got there. Hopefully, you come and you say, I'm, I'm leaving with something. We can trust that we're going to be fed with something. Now, let's be honest. It might not always be the best. It might not always be my favorite food, but I'm going to get something. I'm not going to leave starving. Why? Because this is a faithful, wise servant who gives the food at the proper time, at the time the master has set. He follows the master's plan. The master's given the instructions. The servant carries it out. And so this is the minister. This is the ministry that the Lord seeks. Trustworthy, wise, submitted to the master, faithful in meeting the most basic needs of the other servants out of obedience to the master. Again, you can think of your ministry wherever God has you. You have a role to play, and it is your job to be a faithful and wise servant who carries out that task unto the master. That's what Christ is seeking. Notice the habits of this minister, verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The servant master that Christ seeks, that faithful and wise servant, will be about the business of obedience all the time. Now, where did I get that? Blessed is the, that master whom his master will find so doing when he comes. We don't know when he's coming. We just know that he is coming. So what is the only way to be certain that you will be ready at a time that you, and you don't know when it's coming? The only way is to be ready all the time. Be working all the time. This is the habit of the minister. He's always about his father's business. Matthew Henry said, As with a good God, the end of one mercy is the beginning of another. So with a good man, a good minister, the end of one duty is the beginning of another. He's always busy at his father's work. This is what Christ seeks. And he rewards that, we see in verse 47. It says, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Joseph started off in Potiphar's house, and eventually he moved up to being over Pharaoh's house, over all of Egypt. He was faithful in a little, and God moved him up. Now, here's what we begin to think. Oh, well, what the Lord's saying there is, if you do well with that small church, someday God will give you a big one. That's the way men think, right? That's what men want. That's why after every, on every youth pastor's resume, former youth pastor at, former youth pastor at, and, and a, lot of, that's a, a lot of times the same for lead, lead pastors, 
former pastor at, former pastor at, former pastor at, because they're always climbing that ladder, always chasing the next big thing. That's not what the Lord's saying here. He's not saying, if you be faithful with a little church, I'll give you a big church. He's saying, you just be faithful, and I'll reward you with something better than a big church. Eventually, you will judge the nations. You'll judge the angels. I will give you that crown of righteousness waiting for you in glory. That's, that's more important to a true minister than the size of any church. He knows, and, and hopefully all of us know, with whatever task the Lord has given you, you, you are delighted and encouraged by the fact that the Lord sees your faithfulness, and the Lord will reward that faithfulness far beyond what you can imagine. He will reward this faithful minister. Christ has just described, in essence, the same thing Paul commanded Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Be diligent with personal integrity and executing the task. Watch yourself and do the job. You, you, get, you make it through life having done that. And there are rewards to be had. And so as we all await with alertness and readiness the coming of our Lord, we should aspire to be faithful and wise servants wherever the Lord has placed us. These are the ex expectations and reward of a true minister. Secondly, the description and ruin of a false ministry. Verses 48 to 51, here's just the opposite is laid out. The evil, self-pleasing minister is described and we find out what he can expect. Notice in verse 48, the root of the problem. The root of a false ministry. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. He says... To himself. Literally, he reasons in his heart. There is a sense, and this is not to the neglect of thoughtful carrying out of your duties, but there is a sense in which God could say, I don't pay you to think, I pay you to work. We, some of us have had bosses where we've heard that. I didn't pay you to think, I pay you to work. We should carry out our duties in thoughtfulness with careful attention to the Scriptures. But as soon as we begin to reason in our minds about the rightness or the wrongness of this task, or, or maybe I shouldn't really be doing this, or maybe God was a little confused when He gave me that, as soon as you begin to think that way, that's the root of the problem. You begin to reason in your heart something wrong about God. My master is delayed, he said. Christy would tell me, you, you got two problems. You thought and you thought wrong. My master is delayed. Now, he wouldn't think that if there wasn't some delay, right? We've, we've been waiting 2,000 years. There's been some delay. There was a delay, and Christ alludes to that delay. The problem is, is while that delay is happening, the, the servant here doesn't use that opportunity to be more diligent. Rather, the passing of time just reveals his true heart. He begins to think about his master. He's, he's delayed. We'll come back to that. We're going to come back to that root. But notice the fruit that flows out of that. And, verse 49, begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. So he mistreats his other servants. He passes the time with other wicked men. Why? Why would he do that? Because of the reasoning of his heart. He thought something in his heart and that led to his actions. The way he's acting is a direct result of the way he was thinking about his master. 
The passing of time revealed his true colors. This happens to a lot of men in positions of leadership. The duties are given to them, and over time they begin to become confused about what it is that they're doing. They receive a little bit of authority, a small stewardship, and they, it doesn't take long before they forget who it is they're working for. They forget it's a stewardship. And so they begin to act like self-appointed masters. They lord power over the sheep, mentally and spiritually beat the sheep. They act as though the sheep are there to serve them rather than having their job to serve the sheep. They begin to invent rules and regulations that Christ did not give them to invent. They begin to hold the people to standards that they themselves cannot and will not keep. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, they say, hey, my master's delayed. And they kick up their feet, cross their legs, and throw their hand behind their head, and the sheep run free. They become free-range sheep with no guidance whatsoever. That's pastors and ministers. But again, think about yourself. You're not a pastor. Perhaps in the past two weeks, thoughts about the imminent return of Christ. I told you to be alert and be ready, right? Mentally alert, actively prepared, stay awake, be ready. I told you that for two weeks. Now just think, it's been two weeks since we've been here. What happened every time your mind drifted from those thoughts? Every time you begin to drift from the reality that Christ is going to return, you start wasting time with things that don't matter. Put off your family. Put off the brethren. You let your guard down. And so conversations slip into meaningless chatter about stuff that doesn't matter. Children, your children who are unconverted, on their way to hell, need to be taught, but you need a couple more hours of sleep. Things of the world begin to catch your eye, your thoughts, your attention is drawn away. All of that because you're not thinking, what if Christ returns in five minutes? What would I be doing if Christ were to return in ten minutes? How do I want to be found? We forget very easily that our lives are but a handbreadth. That's why David prayed, Lord, make me to know how short my life is. Because he knew it's not natural to just sit and think about how short our lives are. Every one of us, all the time, even if we don't say it, we're reasoning, but my master is delayed. My master is delayed. My master is delayed. We take a step. And we look and we say, well, the master is delayed. And so we take another step. Well, the master is still delayed. And so we, and we just wonder. That's exactly what happens when our minds wander from this truth of staying awake and being ready. And in these moments of mental drift, we show what we really believe about God. It's not what you do when everybody's watching, when, when everybody's expecting you. Joash did a great job while Jehoiada followed him around telling him everything to do. But when he got old enough to begin to act on his own impulses, he didn't follow the same path. It's what comes most naturally to you that reveals where your heart is. And it's all rooted in wrong beliefs about God and Christ. That's this wicked minister. And we see his ruin in verses 50 and 51. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. 
and at an hour he does not know. We've already heard those truths. Here it, he, it's played out before their eyes in a parable. So they can almost imagine, here's this wicked servant. He's beating uh, his fellow servants with one hand and he's holding a, a jar of liquor in the other hand and all of a sudden the master returns and now what? You're caught. And so he cuts him in pieces. He doesn't say, explain yourself. He doesn't give him time to say, well, it's not what it looks like. None of that. He walks in and he cuts him in pieces. He kills him. But this is not annihilation. If you, if you wanted to focus in on all of this specifically, because he cuts him in pieces, but then he puts him with the hypocrites. He puts him where he belongs. So he's not dead per se. He's just put in another place after being cut into pieces. And in that place that is eternal, everlasting hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That place of outer darkness. That place of unspeakable, everlasting anguish and sorrow. That place of unending, unabated hatred toward God hatred toward everybody else around you and everybody else around you's hatred toward you for eternity. That's where this minister is going to find himself. I'll quote Matthew Henry again. He says, The vilest of creatures is a wicked man. The vilest of men is a wicked Christian. And the vilest of them is a wicked minister. The hottest places in hell are not reserved for abortion doctors and pagans and the gays and the Muslims. It's reserved for men who dared to stand before the people of God and pretend to lead them toward God, but they used that stewardship to exalt themselves and to carry out their own whims and wishes. Those men should expect the greatest torments of hell. And so our Lord Jesus lays out these specifics of a true minister, a false, a false minister, what they can expect. And again, we all have duties. We've all got a ministry that we need to be attending to. Some will receive greater judgment, some lesser, but everybody's going to be judged. The question is, how will you be found on that day? Now, I'll give you three points of application very quickly. Because all of this, again, is rooted in wrong beliefs about God. Wrong beliefs about God. Study to know God. Think properly about God. It's not just a book we read. We don't say, well, the men read the attributes, the women read the attributes, we studied through the confession on the attributes, we know God. No, no, no. That's, 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 not, that's head knowledge. That's not experiential knowing Him. Knowing God is a lifestyle of pursuit, of begging and pleading and chasing after Him. Study to do that. Be that person who is chasing after God. Because every area of life where there is unfaithfulness, where there is sin, is an area where you failed to believe truly about God. It all boils down to that. Think about it. In secret sins... You sin in secret because you don't believe God's omniscient. You don't believe He knows everything or you wouldn't do it. You don't believe God is omnipresent or you wouldn't do it. You, because He's there. 
He's right there. He's watching it. You live according to your own whims and wishes, apart from the consideration of God's Word. You spend the way you want to, shop the way you want to, eat the way you want to, go where you want to go, live the way you want to live. You make all of your own decisions. Why? Because you don't believe God's master. You don't believe it. If you did, you would treat him like master. When you allow the present culture to dictate what is right, you don't believe God's eternal. You don't believe God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, or you wouldn't do that. We say, well, I mean, it was shameful for Isaiah to show off the skin above his knees. I'm going to get specific here. And we say, oh, well, that was back then. That was that culture. So, so where's the new standard laid out, Lord? Right? We don't believe God's eternal. We don't believe He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe we have arrived at that place of, of um, chronological snobbery is what I call it. We think that because we have come farther along, we're smarter than everybody. God's not changed. You consider some sins more acceptable than others. You let your kids get away with this, but not that. Or you let yourself get away with this, but you would never do that. Why? Because you don't believe God's holy. You don't believe it. If you believed it, you would know that he someday His holiness is going to burn all of that away. He will destroy all of it. But you don't believe it because you think some sins are worse than others. You have problems in life, issues, decisions you have to make. You don't know what to do, so you go to Christian brothers and sisters and you ask them, Hey, what do you think I ought to do? They give you counsel and you say, Okay. And then you do your own thing. You reject it. Why? You don't believe Jesus walks in His church. You believe He's in a grave somewhere with a stone rolled in front of it. You don't believe He's reigning. You don't believe He walks in the midst of His lampstands. If you did, you would receive Christian counsel as if it came from the mouth of the Lord Himself because He walks in His church. You remain silent with the gospel. Why? Because you don't believe in the terror of the Lord. Paul said, knowing then the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You don't persuade men. What does that mean? You don't know the terror of the Lord. You don't believe it. You don't believe He's scary. You don't believe it's going to be horrific on that day for the people you know and love as they stand before Him and their mouths are shut and they have no answer. And we take comfort that we will have an advocate there to speak on our behalf, not remembering they're not going to have anybody to speak for them. You don't know the terror of the Lord. You don't believe in it or you would persuade men. Or you realize, I've sinned, I've done wrong. Lord, you start to do good things to make up for your bad things, right? I'm going to be a little better because I've been a little worse. I'm going to make up for it. Why do you do that? Because you don't believe Christ is sufficient. You don't believe God the Father is satisfied with Christ's offering. And so you think, well, I'll add a little bit to that. I mean, I know, Lord Jesus, you, you gave your life as a substitute for sinners, but surely I can sprinkle a little bit of my morality on top of that to make it a little more delightful to the Lord. You see, it all stems from wrong beliefs about God. And so we must study to know God. We should be people of, with lives of holiness and godliness waiting for that day. And what did Peter say at the beginning of his letter? All things that pertain to life and godliness are granted to us through the knowledge of Him. We've got to be holy. We've got to be godly. How do we be holy and godly? You need to know Him.
Study to know the Lord. And of course, the most obvious display of God's character is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. So study to know God, but study to know specifically God in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the express image of the Father. As we look at the life of Christ, we learn who God is. In the sending of His Son, we know God loves us. In the incarnation, we see God's wisdom. In the life of Christ, we know that God now has empathy with us. In the death of Christ, we see the judgment of God toward sin, but we also see the love of God toward sinners. You see, we, we learn of God as we know Christ. The promise of Christ to be with His church teaches us that He loves His church. God loves His church. Study to know God. Study to know Christ, and if we can say it reverently, perhaps even more practically, here's a practical, specific application. Love one another. Love one another. The faithful servant was giving his food to his fellow servants. He was tending to them. The wicked servant was being mean to them, beating his fellow servants. Love one another. When we study to know God in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be reminded and confirmed all of the time of that statement, God is love. God is love. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our life, lives for the brothers. You see, I study, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of His people. I believe He offered that sacrifice for sins because He loved us. Therefore, I love the brothers. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, it's a practical application. I study to know God. I study Christ to know God. And what I learn is that God is love. And if God is love, then I should love one another. John is called the apostle of love. Whoever loves his brother abides in light. We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love pursues the good of others. Love is not some benign mental condition where we just sit back and say, well, no, 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 no not me, not me. Y'all go, y'all, not me. That's not love. Love is action. It's doing something. Love one another. Jesus told his disciples before he died, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Because he knew that would, love covers a multitude of sins. He knew that that would be the strength and the ground of the church. Love one another. The Apostle John writes to these churches and he says it over and over. Just love one another. Love one another. He knew he wouldn't live as long as they would. And so he just says, love one another. Love one another. Richard Baxter has said, and it's a famous quote, preach as though you were to never preach again. A dying man to dying men. If I don't ever stand here again, love one another. Right? Love one another. The Lord's Supper teaches us about God and about the person 
and the work of His Son. As we come to the Lord's Supper, do this. Think, what, do, what is this teaching me about God? It teaches us that Christ would not have us forget His sufferings. He said, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death till I come. As often, not as rarely, as often as you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. He doesn't want us to forget His sufferings. The Lord's Supper teaches us that Christ would have us regularly examining ourselves, that Christ would have us longing for His return, because we know that we await that day when we'll eat with Him in His kingdom. The Lord's Supper teaches us that God, get this, God is so satisfied by the work of His Son that He says, all right, you rebel sinners, sit down and let's eat. Let's have a meal together. That's how close Christ has brought us to the Father. Intimate communion with God. The Lord's Supper teaches us that Christ continues with His churches. And He wants to bless His churches through the means of grace. The Lord's Supper teaches us that Christ has given authority to the church to bind and to loose, to bar and to admit from the table. You see how it works? In everything, we're asking, what is this teaching me about God? Everything. How can I learn to know God? And if that is how God is, then how ought I to be? So take a, just a minute. Let's think through these things. Examine yourself. And then we'll come to the Lord's table.